Imagine Podcasts. This is Backstage, The Devil in Metal. Unheard stories of sex, drugs, and rock and roll from the legends of metal music. Black Sabbath, Metallica, Judas Priest, and dozens more. In this episode... It was also extremely poignant and sad that I had to go to those, quite frankly, dangerous extremes to have some kind of brief physical contact. I mean, I was, you know, doing the classic smashing TV sets, letting off fire extinguishers, pulling telephones out the wall, all that kind of destructive stuff. That would be the terrifying moment because I'd walk back out and people would go, what the fuck? Surely to God that's not a machine gun. We're fortunate, really, they didn't drag us out and stab us. This kind of self-indulgent, self-pity of nobody loves me, take a pill and a swig of JD. Nobody loves me, take a pill and a swig of JD. That was based on a sense of confusion, of reality. If I'd have been there 30 seconds earlier, just to yell at him, uh, maybe, you know, this would never have happened. We don't live forever, but the metal lives forever. And I think that's the greatest thing that we leave when we go off to the next place. The last scheduled date of Judas Priest's first ever tour of America was in New York City at the Palladium on July 16, 1977. The band had opened for Foreigner, Ario Speedwagon, and Ted Nugent on a six-week trek in support of their third album, Sin After Sin. By the end, the musicians were tired and looked forward to heading back to the UK to spend some time with their friends and families. As they prepared for the Palladium gig, they received a call from management. Led Zeppelin vocalist Robert Plant, one of the members of rock royalty that inspired Judas Priest frontman Rob Halford to join a heavy band, had heard Judas Priest were in America. Zeppelin had taken a shining to Priest over the years and wanted to know if they were interested in opening a pair of shows for the Mighty Zepp in Oakland, California. At the time, Priest had spent all of their tour money and their pockets were practically empty. In addition, the shows were a week after the band's last scheduled date, and the members would have to fly from the East Coast to the West Coast and find a place to stay. Needless to say, Judas Priest didn't even hesitate before accepting the gigs. The shows were part of the Bill Graham-produced Day on the Green Festival at the Oakland Alameda Coliseum, and 80,000 fans had tickets for the show. With the help of friends, Priest scrounged together enough money for the plane tickets and a single room in a one-star hotel in a dilapidated section of Oakland. Since they were broke, they stayed in their room for a few days, eating ramen noodles and bologna sandwiches. Then the day finally came. The festival was a union event with an early hour curfew, so Priest was scheduled to go on stage before noon and play direct support to Rick Derringer. On top of that, the band were given 20 minutes to play. The morning fog still opaqued the crowd minutes before showtime. As if it was part of Priest's elaborate stage presentation, the mist lifted, 
and vocalist Rob Halford raised his fist to the sky, and the majestic intro of Let Us Pray yielded to the barreling call for the priest. During their brief set, Judas Priest ripped through their most dramatic songs. The progressive, multifaceted victim of changes, a radio-friendly cover of Joan Baez's Diamond and Rust, and the Metal Stormers, The Ripper, and Genocide. Before the crowd members knew what had hit them, Judas Priest were done and off the stage. And the band had thousands of new fans. Stepping onto the plane that would shuttle Judas Priest back to England, Halford felt pride at having cracked America. At the same time, uncertainty gnawed at his gut. Despite dropping hints on Sin After Sin that he was a gay man, he was still closeted to all but his closest friends. And when he got back home, he knew he would continue a life of isolation and indignation. As he wrote in his tell-all memoir, Confess, the idea of being able to talk to other gay men openly, freely, and without stigma seemed as likely as pole vaulting to Mars. I was after any kind of intimacy in a sexual way, and I wasn't getting it, you know, and that's not normal. <laughs> it's not normal, you know. To have a healthy sexual part of your life is, is vital for your mind, mental health, your psyche and everything else, and I wasn't getting it. Hi, and welcome to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. It takes a look at the stories behind the tales of legendary musicians, wild bands, outrageous events, and the evolution of various subgenres of metal that some still consider the devil's music. I'm your host, author and journalist John Wiederhorn, and all season long we'll unearth new tales, view storied incidents from a variety of angles, and talk to a bunch of musicians that have danced with the devil and so far, lives to tell the tale. This week, we explore the tremendous and sometimes tragic life of Judas Priest frontman Rob Halford. During part one of our show, you'll learn how Halford and his bandmates grabbed the torch of metal at a time when the style was, at best, unfashionable, and forged many of the hallmarks of the genre. At the same time, we'll hear from Halford about how he was miserable for much of Judas Priest's heyday the result of being a closeted gay musician in a heterosexual world. He is known far and wide as a metal god, and with good reason. His full-throated, ear-piercing melodic vocals, theatrical stage moves, and pioneering street biker attire are striking and undeniable. And his willingness to expand his horizons and experiment with different styles of music including anthemic rock, conceptual prog metal, proto-thrash, and industrial, have made Halford one of the most versatile and influential voices in the genre. Former Pantera vocalist Phil Anselmo explains. What a dynamic vocalist, man. You know, if, if we're going pound for pound here, vocals... I mean, even Luciano Pavarotti himself said that Rob Alford was incredible. So, I mean, there you go. I mean, Rob's the king, man. 
I'm going to say without a peer, you know, he's alone. He's alone, man. Robert John Arthur Halford was born on August 15, 1951, at the Beechdale Estate area of Walsall, England, about 12 miles north of Birmingham. Rob's dad, like most uneducated working-class men in the UK, worked at a steel factory, and Rob's mom stayed at home to take care of their son and daughter, Sue, who was one year younger than Rob. Though he was never abused by his father, the same can't be said for Halford's mother, and Rob and Sue frequently heard their parents arguing loudly at night. Sometimes the shouting was followed by a slapping sound, and then their mom softly crying. Several times, their father threatened to leave the family, and once he packed a suitcase and got in the car to drive away. But he didn't get past the end of the street before he turned around and returned home. That's just terrifying for little kids. A lot of things that happen to us as children are in our psyche for the rest of our lives. You can't, you can't dismiss them. They're always there. Sometimes they're deep, but that deep kind of psychosis actually filters into your life as it is now, one way or another. Growing up in a turbulent environment strengthened the bond between Rob and his sister Sue. When Rob was seven years old, he attended Beachdale Junior School. After class, he read comics, watched TV, and hung out at the playground. He was pretty much a regular kid, until he wasn't. One day, Rob was in music class and the teacher was choosing which students would join the school choir. She played piano, and everyone got up in front of the class and sang a Scottish lullaby called the Skyboat Song. When she called on Rob, he happily belted out the words with confidence and clarity. For a few seconds, there was dead silence, and Rob wondered if he had done something wrong. Do that for us again, the teacher said. Rob burst into song, and the room erupted with applause. The teacher took Rob to the class next door and told Rob to sing the song yet again, this time without piano accompaniment. He did what he was told, and once again the students cheered. Rob glowed inside. From that day on, he knew he wanted to be a performer and entertain people for a living. Not long after he found out he was an exceptional singer, Rob realized there was another reason he wasn't like most of the other boys in his class. He didn't find girls attractive. He wasn't sure why, but as time passed, he developed a physical attraction to other boys, though he never acted on them. One day, he found his dad's health and efficiency magazines, which contained shots of male nudists. Rob liked those. He was even more excited when he discovered a book of black-and-white homoerotic photos by Bob Miser. But what to do about it? Rob's confusion escalated and, unfortunately, dovetailed with an experience he had attending an after-school metalworks class. In addition to showing young teens how to work with lathes, vices, and drills, the instructor went from boy to boy sliding his hand down the back and front of their pants and fondling them. Not long after, 
Rob was acting at a play in a local theater, the Grange Playhouse, when a friend of his dad's who helped him get into acting got Rob drunk on rum and black currants and molested him. Although being sexually assaulted had nothing to do with Rob's sexual orientation, as a scared teen, it made him wonder what it meant to be gay. Those were just terribly confusing incidents. Again, you just don't know because these are adults. These are adults doing things to you. And even though you have a sense right from the early moment that you, you feel different about sex, you know that you're attracted to guys instead of girls. So is this what gay people do? You know, you have no idea. And again, that kind of early yearning for any kind of physical intimacy gets in the way. And instead of screaming and yelling and running off, you accept it in a very guilt-ridden way. While Rob struggled with his personal life and began a decades-long battle with alcohol, his role as a performer took off. Being involved in the theater in Wolverhampton taught him how to project on stage and fueled his hunger for live performance. As he neared 20, however, Rob found a new love, music. It started with artists like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and Bessie Smith. Then Rob discovered the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Jimi Hendrix. As the 70s hit, he heard the more aggressive tones of The Who, Led Zeppelin, and Deep Purple. It was a major life epiphany. Halford joined the bluesy hard rock band Lord Lucifer, which never got out of the garage. Then he formed the more aggressive group Hiroshima with drummer John Hinch and other local musicians. While he enjoyed honing his voice in Hiroshima, the band was idling in neutral. Just as Rob realized he needed to move on, Sue started dating a long-haired guy named Ian Hill, who played bass in a band called Judas Priest. When their singer Al Atkins quit to spend more time with his family, Rob asked Sue if she would put in a good word for him with Ian and his bandmates. As Ian told me for Louder Than Hell, the definitive oral history of metal. We said, yeah, we'll give him a try. We went to Sue's house, which was where he was living with his parents, you know, with his sister and everybody, and met him there. And he came down the stairs humming harmonies to a Elvis General song, if I remember rightly, you know. I was like, oh, God, at least I can do harmonies, you know, it's just something back then. Countered Rob. I don't know whether I would have been thinking, oh, Ian's in the house, I better start, you know, better start wailing. I've loved my life as a singer, you know, I still do. What is interesting about that statement, Shereen, of course, is the fact that, um, you know, I think it just goes to show again that as a singer, I, I love all kinds of singing performances, you know, no matter where it's from. And that can be anybody. I've never had a closed mind as a musician to be uh, able to fully understand the, the joy of all different kinds of music. Ian Hill and guitarist K.K. Downing invited Rob to jam with them at their rehearsal spot, Holy Joe's, a school hall attached to a church three miles from Walsall. Rob showed up with Hinch, since Priest's drummer, Congo Campbell, was getting ready to leave as well. After a very English gentlemanly introduction, everyone plugged in and started rocking. I just remember us having a bit of a jam, you know, doing some blues, doing some heavy blues, you know, as a singer, I would just kind of scat some words together, that kind of thing. 
but it just felt good. It just felt um, like we were all connecting, and so we decided to uh, to keep going forward, you know, and uh, slowly uh, utilize some of the songs that Priest were known for at the time. It wasn't an audition per se, but just a few hours later, Halford and Hinch were in the band. For a moment, Judas Priest considered changing their name to Hiroshima, but stuck with Priest, which had been around for longer and had a name that more accurately represented the musical contrasts of the band's songs. Says Ian Hill, I think it was a better name, really. It, it also fit with the sort of music you were doing. You got that sort of good and evil side, side of the name, Judas and Priest. We were already into sort of um, like light and dark shades of our music, you know, fast and slow and quiet and loud and all the rest of it. And it, it fit better with, with what we were doing. I, I think we were also a bit better known as well than Hiroshima. Halford's vocal prowess and performance ability combined with a lockstep rhythmic punch of Hill and Hinch was entrancing. But it was the twin guitar attack of Downing and Glenn Tipton, the latter a skilled established player recruited from the local group The Flying Hat Band, that gave Judas Priest the ability to strike point-counterpoint blows and create guitar harmonies and dueling solos to rival rock bands like Thin Lizzy. It wasn't long before Judas Priest struck a deal with the emerging indie label Gull and released the promising 1974 album Rockarola. However, it was their follow-up, 1976's progressive Sad Wings of Destiny, that took Judas Priest to a new level of artistic achievement. In addition to containing one of the band's signature songs, Victim of Changes, a hybrid of the Hiroshima song Whiskey Woman, and the newer, more meandering priest-cut Red Light Lady, Sad Wings of Destiny featured the gritty metallic tracks Tyrant, Genocide, and The Ripper, alongside more progressive cuts, including Dreamer Deceiver and The Island of Domination. The combination made them one of the most eclectic British metal bands, and an early influence to the new wave of British heavy metal, which included early Def Leppard, Iron Maiden, and Diamond Head, a band that Metallica were heavily inspired by years later. Here's Diamond Head guitarist Brian Tatler talking about his first exposure to Priest. I remember buying The Ripper and the B-side was Island of Domination and I thought that was just incredible. So I, w I went to see them, support Budgie, um, in, in 1974, I think, for about 70 pence. And uh, so I followed them. Uh, my favorite Priest album is Sad Wings of Destiny. But Priest were still a huge influence, and I'm, I'm a fan to this day. While Rockarola revealed Halford as a dominant vocal presence, it was Sad Wings of Destiny that showcased his full vocal range. There were hooky passages gleaned from melodic pop, lofty psychedelia that mirrored the spirit of the 60s, and a crunching, sharp-edged metallic sound in which Rob projected his voice to be alternately like a snarling beast and a wailing banshee. Phil Anselmo, who cut his teeth imitating Halford, 
describes what makes Halford such a great vocalist. A lot of those Rob Halford clones and whatnot, they were cheating, you know? They were hitting high notes and falsetto and shit like that. Rob Halford sang out full. That's how I learned how to do when I was young from learning from Rob Halford, to sing that shit out full voice. I felt like the only kid around that was doing that correctly because all the other kids around me in in little bands and whatnot, they're all, you know, singing falsetto notes and shit. I'm like, man, no. No, man, you got to put your tiny little balls into it, man. Lay into that shit. As Judas Priest's sound continued to evolve, so did their look. Unlike some of their influences and peers, including Black Sabbath and Deep Purple, which were uncomfortable being pigeonholed with the newly coined word heavy metal, Judas Priest embraced the term and flew the flag for the emerging movement, viewing it not as a dumbing down or limitation of their musical expression, but rather as a unifying umbrella under which fans of aggressive music and imaginative lyrics could unite as a vital force of the counterculture, says Rob. It was just this great connection of two words, you know. I think the word heavy music, the heavy sound of music was there, but this word metal was married to it. And it seemed to be, yeah, that's exactly what this band Judas Priest sounds and feels. And we want to be, you know, we want to be a heavy metal band. To be there at the inception of metal uh, is extraordinary. It's like kind of being there at the beginning of the blues or the beginning of jazz or the beginning of classical music or rap or whatever you know denomination of, of sound of music. Uh, I was there when it, when it was uh, given birth, so to speak. This phraseology of flying the British metal flag, it just seemed like a very kind of Churchill type, you know, Churchill-esque statement. <laughs> but it was it was something that really expressed that kind of self-determination and belief in yourself as a band. As an artist that loved the theater from a young age and had been around performers who expressed themselves through actions and emotions, Halford staged dramatic performances that made an impression both visually and sonically. A huge fan of Queen and David Bowie, Priest's ambitious vocalist and his bandmates stretched physical and legal boundaries to create a stellar show on the budget of starving artists. The band used styrofoam cartons full of dry ice to fog the stage and bought explosives from the Army and Navy store, threatening both themselves and the crowd with smoke and flying debris. They stole stage lights from whatever small clubs they played, and Rob's dad helped them build their first lighting rig, which accompanied them across the country. Well, there was a light, you know, a light from a, a, a club venue that we were playing that surprisingly appeared in the back of the, the van b- between the amps, or whether it was my, my dad, bless his soul, making for us our first ever lighting truss because we had this collection of um, light-fingered lights that we that we picked up along the ways, but we had no way to hang them. So my dad, who you, who worked as you know in the steel industry, made us uh, our first ever lighting stand rig, and it was it was simply like two uh, steel tubes with a like a four a crossbar 
stand. Uh, he went up about, I don't know, 12 feet, 13 feet with a crossbar that just was, that had welded uh, bits at the end. So it just it looped into the stands of either side of the rig, the lighting rig. And that was our first ever lighting rig. With the upgrade in stage effects came an effort to secure more extravagant outfits. Judas Priest were still a long way from their 80s signature street biker look, but in an age of rock and roll flamboyance, Halford followed the lead of The Sweet and Slade and dressed to the nines, or at least the sixes. For a BBC TV performance on The Old Grey Whistle Test in 1975, Halford sang Rockerola and Dreamer Deceiver in one of his sister's pleated pink blouses with a belt flared black trousers, and white shoes. And at the Reading Festival that same year, he dressed like a medieval minstrel, complete with black and gold striped pants and a cane. During Victim of Changes, he rhythmically stomped his black boots hard enough to drive nails into the shoddy stage and jerked the mic stand back and forth to the beat of the song. Yeah, I tongue-in-cheek, you know, I, I said only a, only a guy man can do my job. <laughs> And that's not necessarily the truth, but I, I feel that there are certain attributes that I picked up, particularly when I worked in the theatre for that time in, in Wolverhampton, and I saw the magic of what can be made on stage with lights, with set designs, with costumes, with music, with the words and the messages. That really struck me, particularly as a young person, because I wasn't even in my 20s at that point. And of course, as a, as a young person, you're absorbing everything, aren't you? You're, you're trying to make sense of things, especially as you're becoming an adult. So I took that with me when I went into the music world as a, as a profession. In his book, Confess, Halford expresses gratitude to his bandmates for always encouraging him to explore his theatrical side. For them, Halford was a vital force that helped identify the quintessential look and feel for metal. Years before Priest's trademark leather and studs image, Halford's performance style was already a natural extension of his personality. Ian Hill says everyone in the band knew about Rob's sexual preference, and quite frankly, they didn't care. Today, fans can rightfully ask, well, why should they care? But the 70s and 80s was a less enlightened, accepting time. Most gay celebrities were in the closet, some claimed they were in heterosexual relationships to limit scrutiny. Metal was a boys' club, and many of its fans were working-class kids from dysfunctional families. They hadn't been exposed to progressive ideas. Some were racist, xenophobic, and misogynist. Many were homophobic. Life of Agony's Mina Caputo, a transgender woman whose name was Keith Caputo when the band formed, faced a similar battle to break out from the gender restrictions of her era. Because we're all different, but we're in a very deliberately broken system that doesn't allow people to rise up to their fullest potential. That's what the system's not about that. The system's about demoralizing people and derailing people from their own corporeal nature. In an interview for Louder Than Hell, Ian Hill said he thought everyone, musicians and fans alike, knew Halford's sexual orientation. If anybody didn't know he was gay, 
that must have been rather naive, I'd have thought. We used to call it the, the worst kept secret in heavy metal, you know. But, but uh, we, we, we know obviously from day one, pretty much, that, that, that Rob was gay and it was left up to him whether he wanted to come out or not. You know? But no, he, he decided to keep it under wraps. He's a, he's a, he has his, his own life himself, you know, he, he decided to keep it as it was. I'm John Wiederhorn, host of Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Backstaged Podcast to discuss the show and all things metal. You can also email your thoughts, comments, and questions to backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. That's podcasts, plural. Backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. Between 1974 and 1976, when Judas Priest wrapped up the Sad Wings of Destiny cycle, the band had received, in total, only around $6,000 in advance money from Gull Records. After road expenses, they were operating at a considerable loss. But thanks to solid press, TV appearances, and the Reading Festival show, CBS Records offered Judas Priest a major label deal and forked out $60,000 towards the end of 1976 so the band could record its next record. The group entered the Ramport Studios in South London at the beginning of 1977 to work on Sin After Sin. Working with a musician they respected inspired Judas Priest, and in the weeks that followed, they worked hard on new material. Downing and Tipton wrote sharp riffs that hit hard, but didn't meander as much as some of their past songs, and worked with Ian Hill to craft softer, more atmospheric numbers. They even turned a cover of Joan Baez's Diamond and Rust into a rousing pop song. At the same time, to achieve a more modern, slamming sound, Glover hired 15-year-old whiz kid studio drummer Simon Phillips to replace former drummer Alan Moore. Though Phillips wasn't strictly a metal basher, he could play anything, and introduced a heavier double bass drum sound into songs like Sinner and Dissident Aggressor, numbers that paved the way for the speed and fury of thrash metal. The latter was even covered by Slayer on their 1988 album South of Heaven. To beef up his lyrics, Halford brought a thesaurus with him into the studio. When he wasn't howling away in the vocal booth, he was sitting quietly in the corner soaking in synonyms and antonyms that made his writing more pointed. One day, Glover saw Halford with the book, deep in thought, and asked Rob if he was reading the Bible. Hardly. It's Roger's thesaurus, replied Rob, causing both artists to laugh. Sin after sin tested Halford's writing skills, and he easily rose to the occasion. Most of the songs still told stories about murder, temptation, mortality, betrayal, redemption, and existential angst, but they did so in a way that was more poetic. Sinner, for example, featured the dynamic lyrics, Sinner Rider rides in with the storm. The devil rides beside him. The devil is his God. God help you mourn. But the most personal and powerful song for Halford 
was Raw Deal, an unapologetic story about a man hooking up for a frenzied night at a gay bar on Fire Island, New York. A refuge for the LGBTQ community since the 1940s. Before Judas Priest had handlers to advise against such things, Halford wrote the song as a frank admission of his homosexuality. Once it was out there, he didn't know whether to be relieved or angry. Neither fans nor critics picked up on his bold statement. Journalists seemed far more interested in talking to him about the band's Joan Baez cover. It wasn't until Judas Priest were touring for their 1981 album Point of Entry that a fan at a meet-and-greet asked Rob if Raw Deal was about gay guys. Why don't you stick around and I'll talk to you afterwards, responded Halford, who later entered into an on-again, off-again relationship with the man. The only true reference to myself in a song is Raw Deal, which, as you know, is about Fire Island, which I've never been to. I still haven't been to Fire Island. I must go one day just to go, I'm here. Hello. <laughs> Let's go in the dunes, if there are dunes. Uh, <laughs> So Raw Deal, as you know, is a story about the guy going into a bar in Fire Island and this fantasy thing, you know. What does a Raw Deal mean, you know? Well, the Raw Deal for me is, you know, having to hide in the closet as a gay man. Again, the cool thing about that song in terms of acceptance by the band was that, and we've always done this, whatever lyrics are right, it has to pass the, the band test of approval. Because even now I don't speak for me Singularly, I speak for the band. We agree on the message. And when I was writing those lyrics in the studio and the guys read it, I don't think they thought anything of it other than this is just, these are great lyrics. Let's put them with the song. They work with the music. Despite the lyrics of Raw Deal, Rob was still secretive about his sexuality. His romantic encounters were few and far between. He was in a tepid relationship for about six months with a man he met at a gay bar in Birmingham. But on the road, when some of his bandmates would return to their hotel rooms with female admirers, Halford went to sleep alone. His largely celibate lifestyle was frustrating and, as he explains and confessed, debilitating. Having just started on an upward career arc with a major label, fans had to believe he was straight. Being seen in gay neighborhoods or with other gay men could have spelled disaster, especially in the 80s, when misogyny and homophobia were prevalent in metal. Rob had to protect his virile, tough guy image. From time to time, he'd spend a night with someone he was set up with, and sometimes he experienced the temporary relief of late-night encounters in seedy bathrooms. I saw the kind of, you know, the multi-sided parts of those sexual sexcapades, as I was calling them. And in all honesty, it was a mixture of the thrill, but it was also extremely poignant and sad that I had to go to those, quite frankly, dangerous extremes to have some kind of brief physical contact. Sin After Sin received strong reviews and entered the UK album chart at number 23, the band's best showing to date. For their European tour, Judas Priest upscaled their traveling accommodations, passing their rickety van down to their road crew and driving around in a used bright orange Volvo. 
The vehicle was hardly a speed demon to begin with, and it became even more of an eyesore after a prank went belly up. Halford and Tipton recalled the incident differently, but they both talked about it in my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends. We pulled up at a traffic light, and uh, for some reason, Glenn had a, a really hot, like, uh, meat and potato pie. And this big burly biker pulled up by the side of us and was revving his bike and looking at us. And then Glenn was just possessed and threw this meat pie at this guy and caught him in the back of the neck. Of course, it was scalding, boiling hot. So this biker's screaming at us, screaming at us. Anyway, this biker gets off his bike with this huge piece of fucking chain, you know, like a huge big biker chain, and starts thrashing the Volvo. <laughs> In the middle of in the middle of the street, with all these people looking around, going, "What the hell is going on?" Refuted Tipton. It wasn't a meat pie; it was a French loaf, and uh, we were coming back from a, a gig one night, and there was a, a, a bunch of Hell's Angels. As we passed, I went down the window and just sort of hit this guy, hit one of the Hell's Angels with the loaf, and broke the loaf over his helmet, which is only a French loaf; it's only a piece of bread. And then we pulled up at some traffic lights about ten minutes later. Got surrounded by these bikes with chain, prepared to beat the shit out of the car and change its shape. It was a old Volvo, which I hate anyway, so they, they made it look better in my opinion. And then for five minutes they just rained havoc upon the car and then just drove off. We're fortunate really, they didn't drag us out and stab us. When Judas Priest launched their first US tour to support Sin After Sin, they traveled by plane and hired cars opening for Foreigner and Ario Speedwagon. The lineup was a bit of a head-scratcher, and neither of the main attractions talked much to Judas Priest. But the band's high-energy performances won over new fans. The U.S. tour ended in New York at the Palladium on July 13, 1977. The city was already reeling from the Son of Sam murders, and that evening, New York experienced a complete blackout and the streets spilled over with rioters and looters. The next day, the band learned that buildings in Midtown had been torched to the ground, and more than 4,000 rioters were arrested. Not long after, Priest received some equally dramatic news, at least to them. Robert Plant heard Judas Priest were touring the States and called management to find out if the band wanted to open a pair of shows. The concerts Part of the day on the Green Festival at the Oakland Coliseum were monumental and served as a blinding signal to U.S. metal fans. Judas Priest had arrived. That'll do it for part one of Rob Halford, the wounded beast of Judas Priest. Tune in next week when Rob and his bandmates talk about Rob's descent into alcoholism and drug addiction, his tragic relationships, some of the career milestones for Judas Priest, and Rob's decision in 1998 to come out of the closet. Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn, produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. 
And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer. And our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends on Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or Bookshop.org. Diversion Podcasts.